0: Hello and welcome to Working Historians, a podcast series about what historians do with their lives. I am Rob Denning, Associate Dean of Liberal Arts at Southern New Hampshire University's Global Campus. Today we have a special treat in store because our old pal Jimmy Fennessy is joining us from his isolated West Coast Historical Sanctuary. Jimmy and I are talking to Vasilios Kostakis, a historian and academic advisor for Southern New Hampshire University. Today we're going to talk about Vasilios's academic and professional background and how the skills he learned as a historian help him to relate to university students as an academic advisor. What is your name and what do you do?
1: Hello, my name is Vasilios Kostakis. I'm an academic advisor and uh, adjunct professor at Southern New Hampshire University.
2: Vasilios, could you tell us a little bit about your academic background?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I did my uh, undergraduate uh, bachelor's at St. Michael's College in Colchester, Vermont, and majored in history. And then I moved on to a world history master's program at Northeastern University down in Boston. And uh, since then, I've been working at, uh, after that, I worked at Middlesex Community College for many years as a world history instructor, adjunct professor, and then moved on to Southern New Hampshire University. Also did some um, higher education uh, tutoring for the TOEFL exam as well in Boston. Um, I worked alongside an a, um, English Babson, uh, Babson College professor and uh, we were just working with international students on um, just getting them ready for the TOEFL exam so they can um, take classes and go to school in higher ed in the US. So um, that's all, I guess that also pertains to my academic background, but mostly been in history. Um, and now for the past five years, I've been working as academic advisor for Southern New Hampshire University, which um, also has been um, fantastic, fantastic experience. But, um, yeah, that's pretty much been my uh, my road to through academia.
0: Great. And so we'll talk about the career in in a minute here. but, uh, when you were in grad school, what are the time periods, regions, what are the historical topics that uh, interested you that you did some research on?
1: Yeah, well, definitely uh, studied under George Dameron. He was a professor. he's st- he's still a professor at um, St. Michael's College and he was extremely passionate about medieval Europe and the Black Death and I even took one of his higher level classes that was solely focused on disease and how disease and viruses impacted history and it was so fascinating that I, I just like fell in love with the idea of taking something like that and seeing how it weaved in and out of um, historical events and uh, definitely inspired me to want to take a career in history um, just because it's it, there, there's there's endless amounts of uh, roads and avenues you could take and um, like little niches of pockets of uh, history and, and different types of history that you can focus on and so basically, I thought it was, you know, I have an exploratory personality, and I thought that it gave me the opportunity to, um, you know, exercise that ability to just endlessly explore the world and all the worlds within our world. Um, so that was, um, yeah, so that was my undergrad. Um, definitely, there was a lot of focus on the medieval period, like I said, uh, the Renaissance, the Renaissance. And then uh, moving into uh, my graduate courses at Northeastern University, definitely focused more on the world history aspect and basically the the historical figures and themes and ideologies that operated on the margins of um, states and. And how these um, agents would basically weave these states together, and and entangle, and uh, also diaspora like um, remove themselves from from the states that they uh, originally began in. So, I uh, did it. Took an entire course on pirates. So pirates and how they, you know, in the privateers, especially you know after the New World was discovered, uh, that was definitely a fantastic, fascinating class. Um, that obviously brings a little bit of an mm-hmm. excitement to history, um, and then uh, also took an entire course in um, in my master's program focused on oceans and how you, know, you could look at world history based, you know, by focusing on a particular ocean like the Mediterranean, and you know you would learn things, you know, you would learn different things with that lens like you know didn't know prior to that that you know i knew there was a lot of olive growing and an olive um, economy uh, in europe just because uh, you know uh, the history that i did in uh, um, in europe but i didn't realize that you know, the entire perimeter of the mediterranean experienced basically the exact same economy since all of you know all of trees were growing all around the border of the mediterranean so that's that kind of connected all those different peoples together and you know fostered you know economic trade all around the border of the mediterranean so just really interesting uh, ways of looking at history and uh, really enjoyable program and i highly recommend Graduate programs in history history are extremely interesting.
2: Yeah, it sounds like it was a really exciting way to actually study history, and that students um, probably found it fascinating. Uh, that idea of using themes to explore history, like the the history of disease or the history of piracy or something, is just a great way to to really draw in students who might not have a love of history on its own, but might have interest in these other topics. So say if you're a biology student and you love that idea of exploring history through the lens of uh, through, of disease, I just think that's a great way to really draw, draw
1: students in. Exactly. And, it, it, and that's actually what I did. So my paper, my thesis in undergrad, basically focused on how the Black Death impacted the artistic identity of that period for um for florence italy uh since you know obviously so many historians have talked about the art um you know revolutions that took that took place in italy but i was just really interested to see what a watershed cataclysmic um, event due to disease what type of impact that would have on the artistic world and um like you said like it had a major impact which was so amazing to see you know what what does, like a disease and the epidemic of a disease what it does to the psyche of the population and how they re- and how they behave afterwards how they interact with each other afterwards how they see the world afterwards and the way that that is depicted in art it was uh, it was great it's really awesome really great project
0: Yeah, it's always kind of fun to talk about, well, I don't know if it's fun is the right word, but (laughs) uh, it's interesting to talk about the Black Death and the way that um, it kind of came up in my uh, graduate study was, um, you know, there there were books I read along the way, like William McNeil's uh, Plagues and Peoples and all of that. But there was um, one, and I'm drawing a blank on which book it was, but it basically gave the argument that the Black Death is in a way responsible for European colonization around the world uh, because basically the people that survived the Black Death believed that they that they survived because they had God's favor and that therefore they had to then go out into the world to spread God's word f- by force if necessary, because that's what the Black Death taught them to do. And so I'm, th- that interpretation is is kind of debatable, but it's it's always interesting to think about kind of the the, the consequences of something like a, a disease cataclysm, what the effects of it have, and how they can dramatically sh- uh, shift, um, you know, the history of the world going forward.
2: Exactly. It also helps to break away from just a focus on dates and um, and political figures, uh, and really takes a look at social history as well. These these different events um, really shaped the way we grew as a people. Not just how wars shaped it, or how you know um, laws, but but really how people developed throughout history based on these different experiences.
0: Exactly. Yeah, and then the discussion about the uh, the, the history of the Mediterranean. I mean, that just takes me to um, Braudel's, uh Fernand Broudel's massive what is it the Mediterranean and the Mediterranean world in the yep. Yeah. I had to read that. I'm like, yeah, it's like 30,000 pages. (laughs) It's like this massive doorstop of a book. Um, but it's, but it does kind of, I mean, it gives that whole long duration of what the world was like developing around that, uh, that body of water over the centuries.
1: Yeah, exactly. It was, uh, yeah i i completely agree with you the that's i guess that's one thing for our audience to know about Uh, my my experience in my master's program was essentially like for one course reading one entire textbook like that per week Mm -hmm. so i think that's good for listeners to know about you know if you are going to get into a master's in history program you know just be expected to read um you know, really amazing books, but um, be able to read a lot per week. That's really, it's really good to know.
0: Yeah, that really makes you learn a bunch of skills on how to read things quickly and how to <laughs> exactly. tear apart books looking for the argument rather than, because uh, you don't get to read books from cover to cover when you're in grad school anymore. You basically jump in, get the the information you need, and then, you know, get the hell out and move on to the next one, because it's going to be a nonstop parade of books. And so you, it's, Impossible to uh, read from cover to cover. The reading for pleasure will come after grad school. You don't do it during grad school.
1: No, no. And also, um, I, it was really interesting because our discussions in grad school—it's really not just about the content, but you're you're breaking down how did this historian make this book? Mm-hmm. Because essentially, you know, when you're in grad school, you're expected to soon be publishing. So it's like you study the method of how that author wrote that book and why did you know why did the author put this in in the in the preface or like why did the author do this in in the introduction and it, it, it's like you're breaking down the book in, in to see like how you would have written it yourself which is also a really fascinating practice and it's really eye opening pre- exercise to do um, way different than what you're doing in your undergrad, which was also really interesting. So
0: th- it sounds like you had a pretty eventful, uh, you know, grad school and you, 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 you studied some really amazing things and that in many ways, the things you studied kind of resonate with some of the stuff I studied. I did a lot of environmental history, um, especially for my PhD program, uh, which f- when you're talking about like the body of water and all of that, that it it is kind of amazing when you start thinking about how the natural environment has influenced American history. You don't want to get too deterministic about Mm -hmm. it, but it is people had to contend with the physical environment around them. And so that's, that's one of the big stories of, of human history is how did they respond to dealing with natural obstacles around them and how do they, you know, incorporate it into their lives? How do they overcome it? how do they exploit it yeah how do
1: they like the colombian like the colombian exchange Mm -hmm. you know you're just exposed to new resources and like how did the cheyenne respond to all the new resources versus like the iroquois and like you know the how did the, the how did those responses to the influx of new um resources and technology from the from europe how did that impact their decisions on on waging war on each other and things like that so it's like responding to change i think in world history if if you were gonna uh, a lot of world historians that's what they do is they they pinpoint moments of change Mm -hmm. in the world and and compare those moments of change to other areas of the world and um you know pretty uh, incredible what you find out
0: so, moving on from your research interest and what you did back in grad school, uh, let's talk about the mm-hmm. career that you've uh, enjoyed since grad school. So, you've mentioned that you are currently an academic advisor for uh, the university for Southern New Hampshire University. Uh, how did you go from? And you you talk about this a little bit at the beginning of the of of your of the episode here, but how did you go from finishing up your graduate program? How did you end up going into academic advising?
1: Yep. Um, yeah, so it, well, I first started with teaching, uh, I started teaching as an adjunct instructor and the way I got that first break was, it was actually through networking, um, uh, somebody that I knew from my hometown, um, in Andover, Mass. We actually went to the same church and he had, was a tenured professor at Middlesex Community College. And he knew that I had just finished school, and I was looking for work. And he brought me to the head of the department over there at Middlesex. And he said, "You know, see what this." He called me a kid because he's a lot older <laughs> than me. He's like, "See what this kid had, you know, see what he can offer." So the head of the department, right there, he put me on the spot, and he gave me a subject. And he goes, "He goes, okay, um, he, he, um, talk to me about the Enlightenment." And just like that, like, and he just sat back and he's like, go. Oh, and I was like, oh, okay. Uh, oh, and then, like, I basically had to teach him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, you know, he just, he, and so that's just how it was. So if, you know, I think that's good for listeners to know about is, um, you know, make sure you know your stuff before you go in front of the head of a <laughs> department asking them to be a professor. Right. Uh, and just be very comfortable with not only focusing on the content that you are teaching, but also you want to show how much you love the content. Like, that's really, I think, as a history professor, when you bring the enthusiasm and, and you explain why it matters to you and the connections that you've made and the, and, and the way that the history has impacted your life um that that that's the value that we can bring uh in the classroom and so that's you know that's what i had to show him is like yeah do i know do i know my stuff yes but also do i am i passionate about history yes okay all right fine you can teach you can teach our students like that's basically what the test was and i had to do that um and then after i was uh teaching Uh, higher ed at uh, Middlesex Community College, I just noticed that uh, there was just a huge spectrum of um, academic skills that walked into the door. You know, some students were masters at time management, uh, avoiding procrastination, um, taking notes, staying focused, um, holding themselves accountable. Um, finding the correct resources. And then there were other students who were just completely lost. And I eventually just grew a passion for not only teaching history, but helping students. I, I grew a passion for wanting to help students find their way in higher ed. I know from from my own experience, when I was going through it and I was, eight, you know, I was young for my grade. I was going in. I don't even think I was 18 yet. Maybe I had just turned 18 once the fall term started and, um, I didn't, I, I was lacking a lot of those skills and I was lacking a lot of the direction that I needed at the time. And if, had I had a really strong academic advisor, um, would have, it would have been benefited me greatly. So that's why I said, you know what, I really want to get into academic advising. So I talked to an, again, networking, which I think is really good for our listeners to know that. Um, networking is very powerful, especially when you're just starting at, at, you know, any part of your career, it's really important. And I reached out to my friend, uh, Nick, who he was living on the same floor as me in college. Now he was working as an advisor at Southern New Hampshire university. And I asked to him to tell me about the position and he was the amount of energy that was coming out of this person really inspired me to work at SNHU Um, he said he loved the position, he got so much out of it, it was so fulfilling. And um, he recommended me, I applied, I got the job. And um, I've been working there ever since in the same role. Uh, It's amazing. And um, that's basically how I got to the position was through a friend.
0: Um, And I think it's, it's, I mean, it's worth pointing out that the role of an advisor in students lives is probably a bit different at SNHU than it is at a lot of other universities and I don't want to necessarily turn this mm-hmm. into a you know a promo spot for SNHU saying how <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> how glorious we are and all that but it is worth pointing yeah. out I think because when I think back to my college career I never even had and I mean I guess I probably had one that I could have talked to but the only advisor that I had as an undergrad uh, for a while, I was a math major, and so they the math department assigned me to a math professor as my advisor. And the one meeting I had with him is he told me that I was really bad at math and I should stop being a math major. <laughs> and so I mm-hmm. so I switched over to history as my uh, as my um, <laughs> as my major. Uh, but it is interesting that, I mean, because I'm imagining that you probably play a much more active role in students' lives than that guy definitely did in mine. And so I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what your life, you know, what's your daily life like as an advisor? What do you what, what do? you do? How do you interact with students? And, and what's your life like? And what's your daily schedule like?
1: Yeah, um, definitely, I would agree with you. Um, the biggest thing I can say about SNHU advising is... We are constantly trying to push the frontier of advising. Um, in a nutshell, that's that's really what we're trying to do. So we're just in a constant state of change. We're in a constant state of self-analysis. Uh, we're always pulling data on our department. We're putting, pulling data on, you know, what's the most important thing to students? Like, for instance, right now, we're really, we pulled about five really big, requests from students one of them is uh not requests but what means the most to students when working with advising and like for instance one of the big things they're working on that they mentioned was resolution so we're now taking the time to build critical think. like we have all these critical thinking trainings and we're learning how to master resolution during a during a call or whenever a student comes to us for something or whenever we're looking at a student's file like and we identify something like how how are we going to resolve this student's issue not just to what they were looking for what the student was looking for but like how can we push the envelope to um like show them what they didn't even know they were looking for things like that um and, and i could go on and on um that like that's you know that's just like one example of what we've been working on. But um, we have a mentality of we have this holistic perspective on students. So say a student calls us and they have a question about their books, we'll answer that question. But then I'll look at their file as a whole and say, okay, let me quickly analyze you know the student's uh, academic file top to bottom now that they're on the phone with me what can i offer them what can i do for them what can i talk about with them that would bring additional value to their lives and what could help them in that moment even though they were just talking about the books you know i also want to check to see if their registrations are in order you know they they could have a question about a book then i could see if they're not registered for the upcoming term the upcoming terms coming in a week i'll want to take care of that for them because that you know that saves them from calling back in a couple of days. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? So we're 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 working really hard to be there for the student in every way we possibly can. Um, and that means collaborating with other departments. I'm always in meetings now with the student finance department, um, with the admissions department. Uh, i've I've done projects myself with the Shapiro Library. Uh, Because a lot of students come in not realizing that the entire Shapiro Library that we have on campus is now available to them online. And instead of just utilizing Google, um, teaching them how to utilize the Shapiro Library in a way that will make life easier for them as a student, as an online student, and save time and Mm -hmm. energy. Um, Things like that. Uh, we're now collaborating with instructors. We're keeping track of, you know, which instructors are doing amazing, because um, that's another, you know, thing that students always like to know is, it, you know, to fit them with an instructor that's going to work well with them. Um, we're 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 pulling all this, out all the stops. We're trying. We, we've just updated our systems. So now we have a more uh, we have a system that updates data in real time rather than 24 hours. So if a so if a student, um, you know, needs help with their current course, or or if I notice that a student isn't doing well, that data comes in in real time to me. Um, So I can identify something that's happening in the moment because the biggest thing that we don't want to happen is to be, is when we're working with a student it, to be working with them after uh, an obstacle has occurred. Mm-hmm. We want to work with them either during, in the moment during the obstacle or before the obstacle even happens. So we now have um, indicators in place. We have alerts in place to make, to help us um, tackle, uh, you know, whether it be, um, Something to do with registration, or something to do with their uh, GPA uh, in a current course or in their program. We have early indicators, and we talk to those students quickly, and we advise them in which direction they can take before anything big happens to them.
2: It's amazing and fantastic that you have all of that—not only that insight into the student, um, but that you also take the holistic approach, which is, I think, really important to really support students. So. Like Rob, when I was an undergrad a million years ago, um, my advisor was actually one of my professors, and I was very lucky that he actually took a personal interest in me. He was very supportive. I had a couple of professors who were who were like that, but you don't always get that. I mean, a lot of instructors aren't trained to know how to support students in that way. They're they're trained in their field. They might be trained as instructors um, to know things about learning science and how to connect with with students in in an academic way and to really facilitate learning but they don't necessarily know to go beyond or even you know have the time to go beyond and serve as an advisor beyond just the academic so i think the structure that's been set up is a really important one to
1: to support and serve students yep exactly we we focus on a few things because i've even tried to i've taken on projects myself to try to solve, you know, just the gap that there that exists out there between students who just have mastered academic success and they just, you put them in any class, they just have the skills to navigate the course and do well versus students who have, you know, they just never have taken the time or no one's showed them how to ingrain the necessary skills and perspectives, and practices um, that a higher education academic student needs in order to be successful. I have tried to bridge that gap myself, and I have taken a look at, I have put together teams myself of advisors that we've just collected successful strategies. We've put them in a bank. We've tried to tether them to different types of students, and um, The biggest thing that I've come to realize is that there are so many factors and variables that comes into play in every classroom per student because each student has so many unique situations um, in their lives, especially with our population where, you know, we have adults with families and work obligations and so many different types of backgrounds that basically We have had to incorporate into just one single call with a student. We're looking to, you know, engage them in their learning process. We're we're connecting them on a personal level because we want to know what type of factors outside of their lives are influencing their academic performance. So we're connecting with them, not just, you know, with what they're doing at the university, but what's going on outside of school. We are, um, you know, we're, we're obviously, we're remaining professional, but we're, we're, pro- we're, we're using probing skills, probing questions to dive deeper into not just how they're performing, but what are the steps, what are the, you know, minute steps that they're taking, you know, wh- when they're about to sit down uh, to do work, and w- we walk through everything with the student. And then after that, we are building out these plans with each student, based on that particular student's situation, based on uh, you know how often we're going to call, uh, the types of things that we're going to go over, uh, give the student take-home tasks in regards to um, you know things that strategies that we're trying to do uh, that they can try out, and then the next time we follow up with them. Um, we are connecting with tutors, like I'll I'll connect with the tutor or I'll have a student go to a tutor. And then afterwards we break down what happened during the tutoring session. Like we really are really, you know, digging deep and we're, we're, we're enmeshing ourselves into the process that they're going through, not just to complete the class, but to evolve as a student, you know, to, to elevate themselves from being, a novice student who kind of just doesn't have a plan going into a course to is you know, having a clear academic identity at the university. That's
0: a lot of stuff. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Very busy. Yeah. So um, when you are doing all of this stuff, I think you've, I mean, you, you touched on it a little bit, but the, the skills you learned as a historian, do you find any relevance for those skills in your academic advising work?
1: yeah absolutely you, the research aspect definitely comes into play the as a historian, you have to have the ability to ask the the right questions mm-hmm. as you as you both know. um and that's and and you have to have the ability to be analytical and use critical thinking. um and that definitely comes into play here as well. And when we're in history, you are analyzing individual historical figures and you're tracking their movements through history and who they're connecting with and how they're evolving and how they're impacting historical events and that's exactly what you're doing with a student is you're tracking their story and you're in your identifying their story and how that's impact and what's impacting them and and what are they impacting at the university in in addition to you know in addition to that it's also very similar how In world history, there's there's so many historical figures that you come into contact with. Just like there's for me, there's so many students that I come into contact with here at the university. And what you're doing is you're like, can I identify any recurring themes? Um, Mm -hmm. You know, you know, is there a watershed event? You know, that is impacting all these students at the same time. For instance, when hurricanes hit. A part of the United States, we have like an entire team that will then be a task force for that hurricane, saying, "Okay, let's make a list of all the students from SNHU that are impacted by this hurricane. Let's see what we can do for them. Let's make some accommodations in their courses, because similar to history, like water, like we talked about the Black Death or you know, uh, you know, some of the other um, events that we mentioned, like." the way that they impact students it you know goes into every aspect of their life including their education so we try to act on that
0: yeah okay and so do you um are your students you don't deal exclusively with with history students do you deal with students from all fields or do you specialize in specific uh, disciplines
1: Uh, i have so in the beginning i mainly focused with focused on new students so students that were in their first uh, few terms of uh, 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 of their program here at the university. But then they there's a huge demand for advisors in the STEM program. So I've been working with STEM programs a lot lately mm-hmm. and um, just learning about um, all the different uh, fields within STEM, whether it be environmental science, computer science, information technology game design development. So I've been working with those fields a lot.
0: Do you see that there is there a different way that you interact with students that are in different disciplines like that, like STEM versus humanities versus business? Or do you see or do you just approach everybody the same
1: way? That's a really good question. We've definitely come to realize that the STEM students uh, definitely don't like to talk on the phone as much. Uh, but I can't even say that because, you know, once we develop a relationship, we do t- we do talk a lot. But the um, the liberal arts students or the the new students, they um, they definitely like to because, you know, liberal arts are storytellers. So they, you know, they definitely like to tell stories. I love to tell stories, uh, you know, as a historian. So uh, but the the STEM students, they're like, I need to identify the purpose of this call. And then, uh-huh. let's find the shortest route to the solution. Uh-huh. Uh, you know what I'm saying? so that that's just how their brains work. And the stem students, they're not I've noticed that they they're not going to tell you a lot of times if they are struggling a lot. Um, so you like the probing questions definitely come into play, and I also need to. Identify indicators so there, there's some of the data that we can look into is like when was the last time that they were ac- they actually entered into their Brightspace environment. So I'll kind of use those data points to be like, hey, I noticed that um, you know it could be a good student, but it's like, hey, I noticed that you haven't been in your Brightspace for three weeks. Just want to check um, anything going on outside of school that could be impacting your grades or that could be impacting school. Like you. So definitely utilizing the data to talk with um, STEM students, I, I definitely do that a lot. Um, rather than you know new students, where you can you can ask them probing questions from the start, and they'll just be happy to like elaborate. But that's that's definitely a generalization, and I I can't really say. I'm just saying that's an observation that I've noticed. Um, but definitely, I can say that uh, we try to give every student in every call everything we got, you know, doesn't matter what subject they are. Um, We, 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 we try to just take care of them every, as much as we possibly can. And it's true. And you know, what's a really good example of that. Um, It logically you would think, okay, students who are not performing as well, let's communicate with those students more. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And then, and actually, we did some data and we found out that s- successful students who do really well, if we do not talk to them and if we don't connect with them on a regular basis, they actually do fall off the the radar and they do not persist term over term. And it just blew my mind because, you know, the guidance counselors at in high school, I've even said that, you know, in high school levels, I've even said this, but, um, you know, just because a student is is doing well in a course doesn't mean that everything is a okay, Um, And it doesn't mean just because a student has an A doesn't mean that you don't need to talk to them. So every student, you know, in every interaction, you you, you should try to see what's going on under the hood and talk to them and celebrate with them when they're doing well and then work with them and give them hope when they're not.
0: Right. Oh, great. So I know that you're not a, you're not a career advisor. You're more of an academic advisor, but do you find yourself Mm -hmm. having to counsel students who are getting close to graduation, trying to figure out what they're going to do next?
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I actually, you know, we, we talk about careers right from the first um, communication with students. Yeah. Because I I like a, a student who goes into computer science, I'll let them know, um, you know i just you know you're like i just want to give you a heads up um that you get this degree and you go for the you go for the position that position you will you most likely you'll be in front of the computer you know for the entire shift writing code Mm -hmm. and you know i just help them understand obviously you know when when you get the job like obviously you're going to meetings sometimes but I just help them paint that picture for them. So they have an idea because a lot of students come in and they take the computer science program because they know that the job demand is so high. And so if you paint the picture where it's like, yes, you'll get a job and, and yes, it, it, it should pay pretty well. And, and you'll be happy in that sense. But like, I just want you to know what the experience will be like and if that fits your personality and if that fits kind of your lifestyle, because a lot of students come to me where they love being outside, they love outdoors, they love moving, they love standing up. And it's like, you know, can you handle sitting in this chair, writing code, or like, you know, there's other students where they love to be, you know, to have that plan given to them on what they need to do, and they like directions. Whereas a lot of times in coding, what you're doing most of the time is trying to write code that's never been written before, and you run into problems, and you have to somehow figure out the, you know, the way to write the code without knowing what to do or without any precedence before you. And so if that's not your personality and you don't love to problem solve and you don't love the gray area and figuring things out, then it's not going to, you know, it's not the right fit. And and we we talk about that in the first call because it's like, do we really want them to go through 10 courses and then realize, oh, you know what? I'm actually into history, not computer science. You're in such
2: a great position to have a perspective on both sides, both the academic advisor side and the instructor side. Um, I mean, just being able to elaborate a little bit more on that would be great to hear. Kind of how how you see the two um, two roles supporting each other um, in support of the students. I would love to hear a little bit more about that and how you do it. Less from less from you know what you observe and more from from your own personal perspective and how you you approach these.
1: uh, Yeah, absolutely. Um, The it definitely gives me an advantage because in the advising side, I get to hear a lot of the frustrations that students will talk about uh, with instructors. That um, you know, it's natural. Um, They'll they'll come through, and I'll learn, and I'll say, "Oh, okay." And and then I will apply that to my instructional practices when I'm in class. It's like, oh, okay, students definitely don't like it when you when an instructor does this thing. I will not do that. So um uh, I get, you know, I so basically I'll take it as f- feedback for myself. So anytime a student calls in and there was a situation with an advisor, with an instructor, and then um and vice versa too, where where I'm I'm in, you know, when I'm in class and Um, you know, we deal with situations like, um, as an instructor, I I have a lot of advisors coming to me being like, oh, hey, you're an instructor, you deal with this situation with students, what do you do in your class? And they'll ask me, they'll ask me like advice on if when they're talking to other instructors, what would be a nice way of saying something to an an instructor that they wouldn't take it the wrong way. So uh, you kind of play both sides and and you kind of get to see the world of higher ed from both sides and you learn cuz basically at the end of the day my goal is that advising instructors and students we're all a big happy family we're all getting along and the students are successful like that's the goal so learning all the different multiple perspectives and and um, how we can better each you know how we can get students to be better students instructors to be better instructors and advisors to be better advisors that's the game plan and being able to be both has greatly benefited me in both roles, and and my students.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, and it's, it's <laughs> interesting to think that you're the um, the token instructor. Maybe not the token instructor, but you're the one that they uh, want to bounce ideas off of. That, that must, that's an interesting situation.
1: Yeah, because they'll say, like, hey, I'm about to send this email to this instructor. Can you read it? Right. I'm like, sure. I'm like, yeah, he's, I'm like, that instructor's not going to like that. <laughs>
0: Is this going <laughs> to piss the guy off? Or, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> All right. So, uh, Vasilius, do you have anything to recommend for us this week?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Actually, and you know what? Since we're, we're doing a podcast, I was actually just thinking of this audio book uh, I've been looking at. Um, it's it's just called uh, Genghis Khan and the Making of the Modern World, and um, the reason I like it is because I truly think that the the Mongols were the the keystone state to the establishment of globalization because of the the level of uh, relocation that occurred uh, under their empire. They were relocating people from Europe and the Islamic world to you know, run their capital in Karakorum, which was you know outside of the you know the Chinese territory and east asia and and in that steppe region. And everything that they did during their empire was so fascinating. and and you can see the like the shadow of globalization occurring with with every step that they took, that you know increasing the speed at which um, communication, occurred between the the great hordes of the empire um the the great khans and um you know it's so much mirrors our day uh, you know what we do today so it's a turning point in history you know you have so many um interesting characters like the jesuits who went over there it's 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 definitely an incredible time in history and i i would recommend uh looking into this book
0: awesome James, do you have anything to recommend for us?
2: I do. Um, I think I might have previously mentioned uh, Lizzie Goodman's oral history, Meet Me in the Bathroom, uh, Rebirth and Rock and Roll in New York City from 2001 to 2011. It's an oral history of of like the, the Strokes, the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs, um, TV on the radio, all of those bands that came up just before 9-11 and then continued in New York City in that uh, post-9-11 environment. But there is now an exhibition in New York based on um, Goodman's oral history at the Hole, um, which has a lot of memorabilia, um, just things that the band members themselves had images from their from albums. I'm not quite sure how many interactive elements there are. I haven't been to it yet, but I really am hoping to go uh, pretty soon. But as somebody who is a huge fan of music history, um, and especially this time period in New York, um, it sounds like a fascinating exhibition and uh, a really great accompaniment to uh, Meet Me in the Bathroom, Goodman's Goodman's History. Yeah, that's awesome.
0: All right. Well, uh, my recommendation is... It's more of a, it's kind of a boring, you know, organizational policy change, but the American Historical Association has decided to not allow uh, job interviews at the annual AHA conference in January each year. And the reason this is, you know, this is kind of groundbreaking is that for decades, the AHA has been the kind of the central place at which uh, universities would hold interviews with possible uh, tenure track job hires. And so they would, you know, these conferences happen at hotels. So the the really awkward part of it was that usually these interviews would happen in hotel rooms upstairs, like the bedrooms. And so they would always, it was always this weird situation where the committee from the hiring university would be sitting and sometimes the person being interviewed would have to sit on the bed or something which just creates such a weird, awkward environment. I mean, for, for, uh, male candidates, but of course, even more for female candidates. And so it created this very strange and stressful tense situation for job hunters that eventually the AHA finally decided that, you know what, we need to get rid of that completely because that's, that's, you know, that's icky at best. And just, you know, uh, Lawsuit waiting to happen. So, it's so they, they decided that they're going to just basically ban uh, uh, interviews at the AHA conference. And so, they're basically saying that now universities have to, well, they don't have to. I mean, they, I guess a university could still rent a room at the convention and still have people do it, but they're not going to be able to do it with the AHA's blessing anymore. And, so, and this has actually been met with pretty much universal praise by AHA members and by outsiders and pretty much anybody who's been through that hiring process. I've never actually been through that hiring process, but I did go to AHA meetings and I and I saw the job candidates kind of harried as they're trying to rush from interview to interview and just looking stressed and miserable. And it just kind of brought down the whole vibe of the entire conference. So I am fully on board with this idea of banning the job interviews at the conference because it's just it just was not a good situation. And so anyway, cheers to the AHA for making that decision. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you
1: for joining me to joining us today, uh, Vasilios. Absolutely. It was my pleasure. I always love spending time with you guys. Thank you. It was great. And thank you all for
0: joining us today. If you have any questions or comments on this podcast or suggestions for future episodes, send me an email at workinghistorians at gmail.com. For
1: Vasilios Kostakis and James Fennessy, I'm Rob Denning. And I'm out.